This is the Starkville State of Mind, hosted by Justin Strawn. Welcome to the Starkville State of Mind podcast. I am your host, Justin Strawn. I am glad to be back with you guys. I do apologize for about the six-week break. Guys, I had totally forgotten, because we didn't do it last year, just how stressful and how tiring the last nine weeks in state testing is for a teacher. Like I said, it's amazing how quickly you forget such a thing when you don't do it once. Uh, but I got reminded I got reminded really hard about just how difficult it was to get that, uh, to go through all of the state testing and uh, the last nine weeks of school. It's not fun. It is not fun. And when you're dealing with knee injuries and issues and things like that, it makes it even worse. So I do apologize for not being able to record. Uh, hopefully next year I'll be a little bit more accustomed to it and be a little bit more prepared for it when we get there. And that way I can still kind of record at least periodically as we go. So uh, I had mentioned though before I, the last time I recorded my show that I was going to probably go into a once a week format. And I am doing that starting it this week. Uh, my goal is to have a guest on each week to talk about different things going on. Mississippi State, whatever it may be. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. We are going to be talking about the Mississippi State Baseball uh, Regional, the Starkville Regional that takes place this weekend. Mississippi State opens play at 2 p.m. on Friday in Starkville against the uh, Sanford. I think they're the Bulldogs, too. I'm not real sure. I'm not 100% positive about that, but I think they're, I think they're the Bulldogs as well. Uh, but they'll be taking on Sanford. They also have VCU, Virginia Commonwealth, in their bracket, as well as the Campbell Camels, which is a little bit of a tongue twister to say. So that will be on deck first. After we talk about the regional, we will be having we'll have our first interview in quite some time uh, with Chrissy Freud. Uh, she does a lot of work. She is a quarterback analyst. She has done a lot of work and a lot of features on the quarterback position, and she also is covers LSU quite a bit in her work and her writing. So. Uh, I would really highly recommend you giving her a follow if you're on Twitter. She's at Chrissy Freud, I think is it's just a straightforward Chrissy Freud. Let me double check that first. Uh, no, it's at Chrissy C R I S S Y underscore Freud F O F R O Y D at Chrissy C R I S S Y underscore F R O Y D. So that's her. Uh, Twitter handle and like I said after you listen to the interview you'll definitely want to give her a follow on Twitter if you aren't already so uh, let's go ahead and let's take a quick break and let's hear from our sponsor chair let's hear about our sponsor Cherokee Valley and then we'll hop into the show All right, before we get with Chrissy in the second half of the show, let's go ahead and talk about uh, Mississippi State's upcoming baseball regional in Starkville. The Bulldogs will be taking on, like I said at the beginning of the show, the Sanford Bulldogs on at 2 o'clock on Friday. Uh, obviously, it's a big opportunity for the Bulldogs as they are trying to win their first ever national championship, and this is the first step in hopefully making that happen. And it's obvious that they have a long way to go. Uh, before they get to that point and it all starts with Sanford this coming Friday now um, that's the team I want to spend pretty much 99% of the time on just because that's the only game that we know that they're going to play they could end up playing they're going to play either VCU Virginia Commonwealth or Campbell in their game on Saturday just depending on whether or not they win or lose it would like I said it just depends uh, if they if they win on Friday they'll play at seven o'clock uh, on 
on Saturday night against uh, whoever wins the other game. If they lose, they'll play at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the early game against whoever loses that game. So, uh, like I said, we're going to be spending most of our time looking at Samford just to give you prepared for them because that's the only opponent that we are for certain about going into this weekend. So, what is Samford? Well, they are the number four seed. Uh, they won their conference tournament championship. They kind of they played pretty well down the stretch. Uh, they I think they went ten and three in their last thirteen games, and some of the a lot of those games were in their conference tournament. Uh, they're a good school. I mean, obviously, Mississippi State is familiar with them. They Mississippi State beat them in a midweek game earlier this year, ten to two. So Mississippi State is somewhat familiar with them. But that's a midweek. It's not going to be quite the same. Uh, but what are they? Are they are they good offensively? Are they good defensively? Are they good pitching? Based on what I can tell from Sanford, based off of their statistics, it looks like they are actually a pretty decent offensive team. They hit, uh, they have a, bat, a 284 batting average on the season. They've got three guys who hit just a little over 300. Actually, they got one guy who hits way over 300. Tyler McManus, uh, he hits 335. That name sounds familiar for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but that name sounds really familiar. Uh, but he hit 335 on the year. He had 11 home runs. Uh, he led the team in RBIs with 52. Uh, he was by far their leader in slugging percentage. Uh, he had a 609 slugging percentage on the year, uh, 424 on base percentage. He's a really good player. I mean, uh, when you do the uh, OPS, the combined on base percentage plus slugging percentage, he's over a thousand. That's considered an elite level. When you get over a thousand OPS, uh, that's considered a, a, just one of the, among one of the best. Now, obviously, he wasn't doing against the type of competition that he's going to be facing uh, against Mississippi State, but nevertheless, it's something to uh, to consider. Uh, they do have two other guys who were double digits in home runs. Uh, Sonny DiCira, or D- I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, D-I-C-H-I-A-R-A. Uh, he hit 265 on the year. Uh, like I said, he had 50- 15 home runs. Uh, he drove in 42 on the year. Uh, so uh, he's one another guy to consider. And the only other guy who was double digits in home runs was Ryan Crockett, who hit 294 on the year and drove in 43. Um, they do hit a decent amount of home runs. Uh, they are hit 64 on the team, but they've given up 70, which we're getting that with, in, with their pitching in just a minute. Uh, they score a little over seven runs a game. They have uh, scored, where are their runs? Uh, 414 on the season. So uh, that's... Like I said, they are a decent, they are a pretty good offensive team. Now, it's like I said earlier, they haven't done this against the type of competition they're going to face on Friday against Mississippi State. And that's going to be the question. Can they do that again? Look, I I don't know. We'll talk about just what Mississippi State's going to do here in just a minute. But, uh, you know, there is the the chance that Sanford could put a few runs on the scoreboard regardless of who pitches or whatnot on Friday. So that starts to open up the question, do you pitch Christian McLeod or do you go with a Brandon Smith, a Cade Smith? Uh, do you go with Jackson Fristo? What's what's Chris Lamonis's plan going to be as he gets ready to start this regional on uh when he's ready to start this regional on Friday. Because, unfortunately, I was hoping that by the time I recorded this podcast here on Wednesday night at 8.56 p.m., that I would have an idea of who that was going to be. Unfortunately, at this 
moment i don't they have not made any kind of announcement at least none that i have been able to find in my uh, research uh, all the guys that would normally tweet those types of things or report those types of things haven't mentioned anything at this point uh, so what's he gonna do well we don't know yet but here's the thing i would go ahead and pitch one of your other guys besides christian mcleod or will bednar i would save those two for friday or saturday and the reason why i do that is not because i just have a ton of faith that those guys are going to be able to lock sanford down because they like i said sanford could score some runs uh this coming friday it's sanford's pitching staff that makes me think that mississippi state needs to go ahead and just save their two best bullets for saturday and sunday at least that's the hope that you get there because when you look at their pitching staff it's not good they have a as a team they have a 6.12 era on the season um they have their three weekend starters are samuel strickland zach hester and jesse mccord none of them have an era below five uh samuel strickland i'm assuming is their ace and i'm using that in air quotes uh he's got a 507 era he's five and three on the season uh he has pitched 76 innings this year struck out uh let's see he struck out 69 so he's not averaging he's a little bit he's probably about like eight per nine if i had to do the math just off the top of my head real quick there. Uh, walked 14 in those 76 and third innings. So uh, the walks aren't that bad, but he, he's he, he's a guy that's going to give up some hits. Uh, he's given up 98 hits on the season. 98 hits in 76 innings is not good. I mean, that, which kind of makes sense because of the fact that he has a 507 ERA. Um, he's given up a total of – he's only given up seven home runs. That's not too terribly bad, but – uh, yeah, seven home runs. But the thing that he's got a really serious issue with, teams are hitting 315 against him. Okay, like I said, I'm assuming that's their ace. They could go with somebody else. I mean, they they they're, they could their actual ace may be Zach Hester. But if you look at his numbers, he's got a 582 ERA. He is two and three on the season. I don't think that's their ace. So I'm like I said, I'm guessing it's Samuel Strickland. Um, Zach Hester has pitched in 55 and two-thirds innings. He's given up a total of – he's given up a few more hits, a few less hits. He's only given up uh, 47 hits, so he's not giving up one uh, a hit per inning. Uh, his problem is he walks a lot of guys. He's walked 33 guys in those 55 innings. So over – he's averaging basically like five walks per nine. That's not good. That's not going to cut it. Uh, he struck out 50 in those 55 innings. Uh, teams are only hitting 224 against him, but the problem, again, is the walks. And when you combine those walks with the fact that he's given up 14 home runs on the year, that's a recipe to have a whole bunch of runs scored against you. And that's not something that Sanford wants to be in a situation with the, to do against the seven, the number seven national seed in Mississippi State. And like I said, the, the other guy who's their other – uh, weekend starter, that's Jesse McCord. He has a 7.28 ERA. This team cannot pitch it that well. And this is the reason why I'm saying that Mississippi State, if if I'm Chris Limonis, I don't pitch Christian McLeod or Will Bedner on Friday. I pitch one of my other guys. I save those two because if you can't hit this pitching staff, if this pitching staff goes out on the mound on Friday and shuts Mississippi State down – Friday afternoon, then you're not winning this regional anyway. 
this team this team should not be able to this team should have Mississippi State should be scoring 10 runs a game every time they play. They did it once already. They beat they beat Sanford 10 to 2 earlier this season. They should be able to do something similar to them again. So if I'm Chris Limonis, if I'm getting ready to get my team prepared for the regional and the first game in the regional on Friday, I'm pitching somebody else besides Will Bednar, and I'm pitching somebody else besides Christian McLeod. I'm not running my two best bullets out there, and I'm going to save them for Saturday and Sunday, and hopefully we're closing this thing out in three games. That's what I'm doing. I'm not wasting my two best guys because, like I said, if you can't score runs on that Sanford pitching staff, you're not winning this thing to begin with. And so that's the reason why I would do that. Now he may not. He, he may go ahead and decide. You know what? I want to go ahead and just uh, get McLeod out there. Go ahead and do my best to to win on Friday and give myself the best chance to do so. Look, I, I get that. But like I said, I, if I were Willemonis, I wouldn't do it. Uh, so we'll see what he actually does. Like I said, I was hoping that he would have made that announcement by the time that I recorded, but he has yet to do so. I would expect on Thursday as you're listening to this that you get a announcement one way or another but as of right now we don't have that so uh, we'll just have to kind of see where that goes for now but uh, like I said I wouldn't do it I, look I think Miss is going to win this regional I think they're going to do it in three games I think regardless of whether or not he starts McLeod or somebody else on Friday. I think Mississippi State still can win this. I just think it gives you the best opportunity if you hold McLeod for Saturday uh, to do this. Look, VCU and VCU and Campbell, they're good teams. They're not name-brand teams. They've had good seasons, uh, but they are good teams. Uh, so don't let anybody out there, especially our neighbors to the north up kind of where I am, uh don't let them fool you. These these are good teams that uh, Mississippi State is going to be going up against. But they're still teams that Mississippi State needs to be able to handle. They, they don't have the same talent level that uh, Mississippi State does. They don't have the same depth. They don't have any of the things that those types of things going for them like Mississippi State does. So Mississippi State needs to win these. And I would expect them to win it relatively easily, to be perfectly honest with you. They'll have a little bit the, – the thing that worries you about this regional is VCU. Uh, let me pull up their stats real quick because – or their schedule. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going to their stats, but I think, like, VCU hasn't lost in, like, two months, if I'm not mistaken. So let me pull that up real quick. Um, all right. So VCU on the season, they are uh, 37-14. and 14. And their last loss, when did their last loss come? It looks like April 13th, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, April April 11th against George Washington. That was the last time they lost a game. Uh, they beat William & Mary 8-3. They took a three-game set against Davidson. They've won all three of those games, 14-3, 9-8, and 5-1. Oh, actually, they played four games against them. Excuse me. Uh, they won the last game 3-1. They did beat Virginia, a Power 5 school and ACC school. I don't know that Virginia made the tournament, though, this year. 5-3. Uh, to three, They had their season, their series against Richmond. Uh, it was... 
uh, postponed and never made up. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was a COVID issue. Uh, they beat VMI 15 to five. They beat George Mason all four games nine to two, three to one, eight to one, and eleven to two. Uh, they beat Virginia a second time on May 4th, 7-5. Uh, uh, they swept all four games against St. Louis, 14-6, 19-4, 9-8, and 16-5. Uh, again, they had another uh, COVID cancellation against Dayton. Uh, the last regular season weekend of the year, uh, they beat James Madison uh, in two games, 20-18 uh, and 10-1. to Then they swept through their conference tournament against St. Joseph's, Rhode Island, and Dayton. And they scored a lot of runs. Uh, they scored quite a few runs in, in a lot of those games. You'll notice I said a lot of double-digit numbers. Uh, what they do earlier in the year? Uh, they struggled a little bit earlier in the year. Uh, so, I mean, which team are you going to get? You know, we don't know at this point. Uh, and they didn't really play that difficult of a schedule. Uh I mean, when you look up and down their their schedule, the biggest name you have is Virginia. Uh, you don't have a whole lot of big-name teams. They did play Virginia Tech. They split those two games. They lost nine. To, they lost 10-9 uh, back in on March 9th, and they won the next game 10-7. Uh, so that's really it in terms of competition. So, I mean, yeah, they've won a whole bunch of games, and it's been a while since they've lost, but – how much do we take into account for that? We, we don't know. I, like I said, I kind of expect uh, VCU to be the team that Mississippi State has to uh, – I, I, well, I kind of think that's going to be the team that Mississippi State has to beat twice. I think they'll have to beat them on Saturday in the winner's bracket game. I think they'll have to beat them again uh, in the championship round of the regional, and hopefully they don't have to do it one time. They uh, they get taken care of the first time. Uh, they're a good team. Don't get me wrong. They score a lot of runs, but like I said, I just they haven't faced the same – type of competition that uh they're going to see when they take on mississippi state should both teams get there so uh that's my prediction for the regional uh so let's go ahead and wrap up baseball and let's talk a little bit of preseason football with our friend chrissy freud All right, joining the show is Chrissy Freud. We are glad to have her. How are you doing tonight, Chrissy? Pretty good. How are you? Doing great. I'm glad to have you on the show. I'm trying to get into a new format where I get guests on the show more often, so I'm glad to have you as my first guest in a while. Uh, let's go ahead before we get into anything else, though. <laughs> what would you call yourself? Because you do a lot of work with quarterbacks and, and analyzing quarterbacks. What would you call your your writing on all the work that you've done previously uh, covering the quarterback position? Yeah, we typically just call me a quarterback analyst. I mean, I do a lot of feature writing. A lot of my stuff is analytically based, but that's kind of what we've, a lot of people call me a quarterback guru and a lot of people call me the quarterback <laughs> whisperer. So there's a variety of names, but I usually just stick to quarterback analyst. Well, how did you get into that? Because I guess, I mean, I'm sure most people say, you know, you didn't play football, unless there's some part of you I don't know about, uh, you didn't play football. So how did you get into that? Yeah, so the way that I got into the quarterback position, just analyzing players, is we had this eight-page essay in English class, in my dual-credit English class, a long time ago. And so I wrote a paper on Zach Mettenberger because it could have been about anything. And so they thought that it was really good. And I kind of was like, oh, you know, I think I like this. And I've also shown dogs my entire life. And this is a really weird analogy to make, <laughs> but it makes sense when I'm at the end of it. So dog shows are based on a breed standard. It's an evaluation based off of like core aspects. And with quarterbacks, you have like mechanics, accuracy, ball placement, et cetera. 
mental processing. So really at the end of the day, it's kind of the same thing in a really weird way. So it's just kind of something that was always in my wheelhouse. And now I just like apply it to uh, football players. Oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I didn't really get into writing too. I mean, it was until I got to be a, uh, a senior in college. Now I didn't really put it into practice till later, but I didn't know I enjoyed writing. So, I mean, I, I kind of get that. You don't really, you start writing about something that you don't really think about uh, in a subject, a class, whatever it may be, it might lead into something else. So uh, it's just kind of mm-hmm. weird how that kind of works out some of the times. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, the reason I had you on here because I want to talk uh, a little bit more specifically about Mississippi State and their quarterback position. But before we talk about this coming year, let's look back at last year. Uh, one of the things you did last year before we went into the football season was you did a, a breakdown of all the SEC quarterbacks. And I thought you did, looking back at it, because I went and found it uh, about a week ago, I thought you did a really good job of like kind of handicapping the race. And I thought it was pretty much spot on. There was only one exception. Uh, that was the one you had number one. That was KJ Costello, which honestly, I thought he was going to be spectacular as well. Uh, what happened? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really don't see it as KJ's fault. KJ's a quarterback that I worked with a lot ahead of the draft. Um, a quarterback that I covered a lot during the season and someone that I've kind of, I wouldn't say I've gotten to know him very well, but I've gotten to know him a little bit. And as someone who's also certified in the air raid offense as being an offense that I really understand, I think quite well. I mean, it's based off of repetition execution. And when you have a lot of players uh, that came from a totally opposite offense based on the power running game, and you have a COVID off season, which is basically no off season, you have an offense based on repetition execution, but here's the thing. There's no repetition uh, to go into that execution. And so I don't really want to say that it was doomed from the start, but I mean, the, I think that everyone kind of knew that the odds were stacked against them, especially coming with players that are from a totally opposite scheme. And so I think that KJ Costello had a very hard job. I think he did the best that he could with it. And then he also had, he told me the COVID exposure and the concussion that left him out back to back for a total of four weeks. Right. And by that point, you're pretty discombobulated. And the way that I view it, I don't think that Will Rogers really came in and did that much better of a job. So right. I think that it came down to supporting cast and the offensive line was not that great either. And you look back at even the LSU game, people want to go, oh, the LSU secondary was so bad. And that's why KJ Costello did such a good job, which, I mean, it, it helped that Derek Singley Jr. was out and that these guys were not up to par. But I mean, you look at the offensive line. Right. And they were doing nothing for KJ, who is a pure pocket passer, and they're snapping the ball above his head, into his face, into his chest. I mean, and, and then there were a lot of drop passes, and uh, some of the turnovers weren't his fault in that game either. So I don't, I don't think that KJ had as easy of a job as people thought that he did. And then it just kind of fell apart at, at the seams as time went on. And then when you lose weapons like Kylan Hill, guys like that, I mean, what do you have to work with other than guys that are that eventually became a part of this mass exodus that we saw? So right. I don't really view it as I don't really view it as KJ's fault uh, much at all. I think there's things he could have done differently. I think that there's times whenever he goes to throw the ball and he's under pressure and he holds the ball like behind him really weirdly. I could show you on tape and circle it out, but I mean he's not perfect. But I don't think that it was all his fault. And I think under different circumstances he could have had a much better season. And he showed us that at Stanford. Yeah. How much though? Uh, there's a lot of, you know, at least for the among Mississippi State fans. You know, he quickly went from, oh, my gosh, he's the greatest thing ever to, okay, we want him off the field. How much did the – just the performance against LSU – I mean, 623 yards, that's a SEC record that will probably stand for quite some time. I mean, he, not only did he set the record, he put some distance between him and number two. How mm-hmm. much did that affect 
just the the bitter taste of you do you think most uh Mr. State fans mouth because like I said he went from like beloved golden boy to like we don't want him anymore how much did that initial performance just kind of I don't know uh just misshapen expectations for him yeah well I think when you go out there and you set the bar that high for yourself you kind of have to stick to it and then if you if you fall really any short of that with the way that college football fans tend to be especially in the SEC uh, it becomes very likely that they kind of want you gone or that they think that somebody can be better if you did it than someone else uh, can do it or somebody can surpass you. And so I think that by setting the bar that high that it became to where he had to be like this unreal quarterback every single time. And of course, it, it was kind of a sharp nosedive. Like I said, I don't think that it was totally his fault. Right. But yeah, I mean, I can see why because you go in, you have this new offense, this new coach, these some very few new players and you go from being a school that kind of doesn't have as much notice and then you beat the defending national champions, defending national champions. And so it becomes this big deal. And if you stray anywhere away from that, then it's kind of like, oh, no, where have we gone? And so I think that it was almost kind of a, a negative thing for that to happen so early on in the season, if, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. And you mentioned the offensive line because you, you mentioned that you, you know, you've done a lot of work in studying and analyzing the air raid offense. The offensive line, as much as anything else, I mean, when Mississippi State fans or anybody else starts looking at the season that Mississippi State had in 2020, the biggest issue I try to tell people always, it doesn't matter what anybody else, whatever happened else on the field, it doesn't matter what the quarterbacks did, running backs, wide receivers, but the offensive line not being able to block five guys, not being able to block three, it was never going to be successful. Just what do you, of your opinion, just by looking at that team and the offensive line, why couldn't they execute when they were just being asked to block three people for a significant portion of the season? Yeah, I think that it comes down to the fact that the offseason affected uh, everyone negatively and then a specifically a team that's transitioning schemes. So I think it comes down to something that simple and the fact that Mississippi State had either the youngest team or the second youngest team in the SEC. So I think that it's only up from there, but I think that you kind of, in a way, almost started from ground zero or pretty close to it. Yeah, it was a huge change. I mean, I don't think we really took into uh, account just how big of a change that it was going to take. We just kind of assumed Mike Leach, he's always putting up lots of yards, lots of points. It'd be the same here and not thinking about it's going to be a big adjustment. So mm-hmm. let's go ahead and get into uh, this upcoming year, though. Let's go ahead and talk about the quarterbacks that are currently on the roster. Uh, the two that are that were here for spring, the ones that – most people have their eye on uh, Will Rogers, who did take over the starting job uh, about midway through the season. Uh, just let's go start with him. You've, you've actually seen him. He has game tape uh, in the Mississippi State offense. What was your overall evaluation of how he did once he did take over? Well, I thought in the beginning there were a lot of freshman growing pains, as you would expect from a true freshman that uh, is supposedly he's ahead of schedule, but he takes over for a veteran in the middle of a game against Alabama of all teams. And so I think that at first he did look like a true freshman, but I think as time went on, both Will Rogers and the rest of the offense and the rest of that team started to get its feet under it. And so I think that maybe he benefited a little bit off of that, but I think that he started to get better with accuracy, started to get better with the deep ball. I've seen a lot of flashes from him and a lot of things that I like, but I'm going to have to see a lot more from him on a consistent basis. And based on what I saw in practice, the time that I went out there, uh, there were some things I liked about him. I thought that him and Jack Abraham were very close, but he's not someone who just it just wows me off the charts for sure. 
let's go ahead and talk about Jack Abram. He is the Southern Miss uh, grad transfer. Uh, you know, this is the third straight time that Mississippi State's had a grad transfer quarterback come on, so they're starting to get a little bit worried after the results of the past two. What do you know about Jack Abraham? How, how familiar are you with him? Yeah, I've watched so just very little of him. And like I said, when I went to practice, I saw him. I think that him and Will really are neck and neck. I think Daniel Greek and Chance Levertich could make a little bit of a push. But I think that it ultimately comes down between those two. And Mike told me that. And I think that Mike's told pretty much everybody that uh, at this point, that it comes down between those two guys. And so with the grad transfer, you kind of like the element of experience, kind of that veteran element and I know that you want to say well some people want to say at least the past two quarterbacks between Tommy Stevens and KJ Costello that have been grad transfers well they didn't do very well they didn't really pan out but I kind of look at that the same way when we get to the draft and the people go oh well all these guys were number one picks and only these were successful it doesn't matter because really in, the, in all reality that's a, a non-existent stat and if anything it kind of comes down to like superstition or just something that really can't be relied upon. Right. I mean, trust me. Uh, I try to say that like every grad transfer is not the same, but doesn't doesn't necessarily always land, to say the least. Um, but one thing that I think a lot of people were thinking when this is a grad transfer, Jack A. Brand coming from a smaller school that most people don't ever hear about that often. This is kind of a similar situation, I think, that uh, kind of like KJ Costello had with his unfair expectations after the first game. You know, the one thing that people start asking, okay, well, Mike Leach had another quarterback who came from a less heralded smaller school and put up huge numbers. Could Jack Abraham be the Gardner, next Gardner Minshew? What would you say to people who might be thinking that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's absolutely possible. And I think that this is a very quarterback friendly offense. But the only thing about saying it's a quarterback friendly offense is the fact that I said in the past, like it is based on repetition execution. I think that last year, was a fluke for the air raid offense because the cool thing about this offense to me is that if executed properly, it is literally unstoppable. You look at the plays, you look at it on paper. It is basically like by math, essentially it's <laughs> on, it is not possible to stop. And so I think that there's a lot of quarterbacks that can be successful with it uh, in an, a proper off season. And I've uh, worked with Anthony Gordon, just like from a journalism standpoint, publicity kind of standpoint ahead of the draft. And I, uh, got some quotes from Gardner Minshew about it as well. And, it, and when you look back at the numbers and the success that they've had, I mean, you see some guys that are produced uh, very well and a lot of guys that put up big numbers on the stat, uh, the stat sheet and win a lot of games. So I think that with the proper offseason going to its second year in the SEC, a return to the SEC, I think that we can see some good things from it and maybe some good things from Jack Abraham as well. Let's go ahead and look at one more. And you probably, you may not know much about him at all, but just what do you think the chances are that the heralded freshman that's getting ready to uh, step on campus, uh, Sawyer Robertson, he's from Texas. He's the highest rated quarterback that Mississippi State has ever signed. I'm not saying he's one of the best. He's, he's got some big shoes to fill back there. But he is the highest rated uh, in terms of being, you know, college ready, uh, potential star quarterback that State's ever had step on campus. Can he have an impact in his first year? Yeah, I mean, I think depending on how uh, just how things go at the beginning of the season, I can't help but think that it's Will or Jack. And honestly, at this point, I'm leaning toward Jack uh, that enters the season as a starter. But I think that if we have another situation like last year, we have an injury affected or if a, a quarterback just starts performing not quite up to par, that maybe you want to put a guy like that in. And he's not uh, highly rated for no reason. I think that he brings a lot to the table. I've only watched a little bit of him, but I think that there are definitely some things to be excited about in there. Let's go ahead and look at a little bit at uh, 
Duck, the, the first game for Mississippi State and LSU in SEC play is against each other, much like it was last year. Uh, let's take a look, little bit look at that. Let's look back at LSU last year. Why did it fall apart so quickly for LSU? I mean, they went from one of the literally one of the greatest teams ever in college football in 2019 to a team that just didn't resemble anything. I mean, we we knew there would be a step back. They lost a lot of production, but I don't think we knew it was going to be that big of a step back. Just what all went wrong for LSU last year? Yeah, well, I think it essentially comes down to the fact that they lost literally everything. And whenever you lose literally everything and you have a bunch of rare players on your team, some once-in-a-lifetime guys like Joe Burrow, then it makes an even bigger impact. I don't think that Miles Brennan was ever ready to be the starter. And I think that, for lack of better words, he really kind of looked like a lost puppy in that first game against Mississippi <laughs> State. And I don't <laughs> – I just don't know how that's acceptable whenever you sit behind a guy as heralded as Joe Burrow is and whenever you were supposed to be the starter to begin with. Because to me, that was a true freshman uh, true freshman performance that he put on against Mississippi State. And the only reason anyone wanted to say that he got any better was because he played a bunch of cupcake opponents. And yeah, there were some things in his game, the accuracy, always good on the deep ball, stuff like that that started to get even more consistent. But I don't believe it until I see it against a really good SEC play on a consistent basis. And so I think that you don't have anyone nearly as good at the uh, quarterback position. I think Max Johnson might develop into something uh, really nice moving forward. And he showed us that toward the end of the season. But then you lose Clyde Edwards-Alaire. You don't have that great of a running game. Uh, The two-headed snake between Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson. And then uh, Terrace Marshall did a good job. And he was becoming a star. But then before you know it, he opts out. And we had a lot of really good guys opt out. Eric Gilbert, too, could have really been a star. And then that defense, I... (laughs) I really think that the guys didn't quite know what was going on. It's kind of what it looks like, at least yeah. at the beginning, transitioning to a new scheme. And uh, just Bo Pelini's scheme never worked out at LSU. And I think it has something to do with, once again, repetition COVID offseason as well. Right. There's a lot going. I don't think – I think people just expected talent just to come in. and Because LSU has tons of talent. They just expected it to be kind of an Alabama situation where, they, you know, they could just come in and just replace everybody regardless. Uh, even in Alabama, I think, would have struggled to replace as much as LSU did last year. Uh, let's go ahead and look at this year for LSU. Before we get into Mississippi State, your preview about Mississippi State, uh, Ed Ortron has a lot going, has an uphill battle to, to climb this year. He's got, obviously, he's got to make up for a very disappointing season last year. There's also the NCAA specter that is haunting LSU right now. How is that going to play into the upcoming season? I think the LSU comes back a lot stronger this year. I think they have a lot of talented guys across the board. I think they have a better defensive coordinator. Uh, with I think they just have a better plan in general. And I think that they've kind of figured out a little bit more of who they are um, at quarterback, and they've got guys emerging everywhere. And so I think it's just there's a lot more slightly experienced talent on the team with a little bit more of a plan, if that makes sense. And then they bring back uh, they bring back guys that are associated with Joe Brady, who was a part of that video game offense. They're going more spread, something that I personally like to see in an offensive scheme. And so I think really they're getting back to those national championship roots and they have the pieces in place that may need to mature just a little bit better, but I think they're on the right track. Right. But how about the, the NCAA impact, the fact that they are under investigation, they have a lot of things, that whole aspect of uh, the all-field stuff, how is that going to affect the team? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I'm not going to name any names, but there are some recruits that have told me that that makes them want to steer away from LSU. 
So I think that it's definitely impacting the image of the school for sure. I think right. it might be affecting recruiting a little bit, but I mean, when you look at how well they've recruited even recently, it doesn't seem like any of like the big name guys are really kind of uh, pushing away from the school. So I think it's, it's a dark cloud and we'll see how much comes of it. But I mean, outside of a, affecting the recruiting game, unless someone gets fired over something that's discovered, I don't see it really the game of football itself at LSU. I don't see it really affecting it too, too much. All right, like I said a, pre, a second ago, Mr. State and LSU, they'll play the first SEC game against each other uh, for the 2021 season. You did a, a game by game, uh, just too early preview on what, how you thought LSU would do when you got to Mississippi State. First, tell us uh, what you think, if you had to predict it right now, what you think Mississippi State and LSU, how it would play out and what's your reasoning behind it? Yeah, I think I said 47 to 43 because I've seen how close it could be uh, last year between these two teams. And I am a little bit biased toward this offense because I'm certified in it. I've been right. studying it for a while now. I've worked with a lot of quarterbacks from this offense. And like I said, it just, to me, it seems like whenever you have enough reps and the right players in it, it's practically no fail. And I think that the, the stat sheet and the win total goes on to show that. So I think I, it's just the fact that I have faith in the offense and the fact that I have faith in what Mississippi State can do this year uh, with a proper off season. And then some of the, really big holes that I saw the LSU had that, yeah, I mean, everything was going on paper for LSU right now, like as position wise and new hires and stuff, but you have to see it put together on the field consistently. You never know how that's going to play out until you see it. And so I say Mississippi State by just a little bit. Would you have the same opinion uh, if like the game was scheduled later in the year? Do you think LSU would probably be better positioned to handle the air raid, know their defense better, or would you probably still think the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I could go both ways on that, but I think that the way that the defense performs toward the beginning of the season, especially uh, towards a quote-unquote uh, lesser opponents, is going to tell us a lot about that as well. Okay, well, cool. All right, Chrissy, well, I do appreciate you coming on the show. I want to go ahead and wrap us up there. I do appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, maybe before the LSU game actually comes, we can have you back on the show. Of course. All right, thank you, Chrissy. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, thanks to Chrissy for coming on the show. Like I said at the beginning of the show, if you're not following her on Twitter, I would highly recommend that you do so. Uh, her Twitter handle is at Chrissy, C-R-I-S-S-Y underscore Freud, F-R-O-Y-D. Uh, she's done a lot of really good stuff. I've enjoyed reading her articles and things uh, in the time that I have followed her on Twitter. I expect to see a lot from her as she continues in her career in journalism and covering football in general. So, uh, appreciate her coming on the show. Like I said, hopefully we'll have her back on to preview the LSU game once we actually get to that point in, I think, September. I think that's when that game is taking place. Uh, but until then, until our next show, appreciate you guys tuning in. And as always, until next time, Hell State. Thanks for listening to the Starkville State of Mind. 